This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Coming up on today's show, Roman Bobber, candidate for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, will join us to start the show. We'll also talk about abortion in Canada. Lots of reaction, protests in our country following the Supreme Court decision out of the United States. Where do we stand? And what on earth is going on with travel in Canada? Mr. Bobber, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Good to be with you. Um, you know, I was saying earlier, to, to me, conservatives in this country, to my thinking anyway, and I re- recognize a lot of people don't agree with me, um, they're facing a very important choice here. You know, basically, it's a flat-out rejection of some of the more, uh, what I call dangerous positions um, within uh, the Conservative Party, or at least, you know, tacit acceptance of them. Do, do you reject that? Do you sort of, you know, play footsie with them? You know, where do you come down with some of um, the more controversial points that are being made out there. Look, I think you have to be clear about what you're exactly referring to. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Jew from Eastern Europe. My family suffered considerably from the Holocaust. It's important that we reject racism in all forms. Yeah. And uh, I'm a very big fan of Canadian multiculturalism and pluralism. As someone who has immigrated to Canada and had every blessing our country had to offer, um, I, I think that um, our diversity uh, is, in fact, our strength. But that is not to say that we should taint those that disagree with us or demonize those that disagree with us when it's unwarranted. True. There's absolutely no, there's absolutely no basis in reality to suggest, for instance, that the truckers' movement, that the hundreds of thousands of Canadians that peacefully congregated on Parliament Hill to stand up for their right to earn a living without having to to mandate uh, a medical procedure is in any way racist. There's no reason to suggest that because you might uh, speak to a soldier who was removed, who was purged out of both uh, the CAF and the RCMP after having served four tours in Afghanistan and saying, I have fought for my country and I'm asking my country not to dismiss me because I did not do a medical procedure, there's absolutely no reason to, to demonize such people. Instead, what we need to do is we need to engage in conversation, and instead of dividing Canadians, actually speak and listen to Canadians. Um, I, I agree with you, I, and I think it, it's, it's, it's a great thing to have people out uh, protesting and having their voices heard. The question I'm asking, though, is what you said, if it's warranted. There's nothing wrong with supporting people like that. Where does the line get drawn? Where do we decide what's warranted and what isn't warranted? Is it warranted to have people going there and saying we want to meet with the governor general and end the Trudeau mandate? Is it warranted to have um, you know those kinds of people represented as leaders of this convoy? I mean, can you delineate? Can you draw a line with that movement? <laughs> if if people are under the misconception of how our democracy works, in that somehow they can urge the governor general to dissolve parliament, then then let them suggest that and, and be wronged for their own peril. What's important is that we do not abridge fundamental rights of assembly and expression, something that, his, something that this uh, Justin Trudeau government has no difficulty in doing, whether it's the invocation of the Emergencies Act, 
which was clearly unlawful, seeing that other legislation was available to deal with it. The, the parliament voted after the alleged emergency was over. And, um, uh, of course, everything that they said about the convoy turned out to be false. Not a single weapon was found on site. The arson was not connected. There was very little foreign funding, and there was no foreign collusion. So, but at the same time, you have Canadians that were subjected to a choice that they should never have been subjected to. I think it's inhumane to, to suggest that someone should choose between their personal health and their ability to put food on the table. And, and regretfully, what we see the radical left and, and Justin Trudeau and, and to, to a large extent, popular culture do, is they dismiss the issue, the underlying issue, which is consent and the ability to participate in society. And, and instead, they go to pejorative allegations such as racism when it's not based in fact. Okay, I, I didn't say anything about racism. I, did, I haven't mentioned that. I know you, you leapt to that immediately. And, and I, I guess you're talking about somebody else saying the convoy was racist? I... I I've been to reports in the last couple of days that, that uh, both myself and MPs okay. met with James Stop and, and subsequently Pierre Polyev did. And of course, we know that the underlying allegation against the convoy from inception was an allegation of racism. So you're welcome to clarify uh, whatever it is that, that you think people are. Well, I asked you pretty clearly what it was about. It was about, you know, one of the guys, one of the guys, Tom Arazzo, was one of the people sitting there saying he wanted a seat at the table with Senate and the governor general the last time he did the convoy. So, I mean, it's not like you're saying, oh, there's some people who were there, you know, disillusioned and, and, and don't have an understanding of how democracy works. One of the leaders of this convoy was the guy who was pushing that mandate. So, I mean, so one second, people people have the right to to seek to meet with whomever of course they, they want. Do. Absolutely, I'd like, to meet, I'd like to meet. I'd like to meet with the Pope, and and uh, and Michael Jordan while at it. That that doesn't mean that we need to demonize folks, and and that's what I've been trying to urge from the beginning of this COVID exercise, is that somehow our public policy response is driven in in how people should be approached personally. And I think we should make it about policy. Yeah. For instance, you know that I was rejected, uh, that I was ejected from the Conservative Caucus in Ontario because I authored a letter to the Premier asking that we factor in the toll of our public health response, namely the lockdowns, that we factor in the harm, the collateral harm of lockdowns into our public health response. Clearly, we understand that there are side effects of lockdown that are very detrimental sure. to society. I was ejected as, as a parliamentarian from the PC caucus. I lost my chair of the Justice Committee. And, of course, I was demonized very, very heavily by many of those that have disagreed with me. But we never need to make it personal, nor do we need to make the question of passports or mandates personal. So may I suggest that perhaps we should address the underlying issue. Is it appropriate for us to make it as a condition of employment or as a condition of running your small business, which is taking a truck across the border, to, to do something that you don't want to do, to do something against your will? Is it justifiable in science? Is it justifiable in democracy? Instead of, instead of dismissing people in, in, in pejorative fashion, as, as the liberals are very good at doing, Fair. Absolutely. And who answers the question, though, I guess, is what it comes down to. I mean, you've got the vast majority of Canadians that are vaccinated and do support vaccination. So um, I I think you're raising very good points. I do want to move on to another. The other issues that are out there. If I just respond to that very quickly, quickly. Yes, go ahead. I'm 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 vaccinated myself. I made the choice that most Canadians have made. 
But that doesn't mean that we should force people to do anything against their will. This is not majority rule. Mm. This is a human rights issue potentially as well. So I think it's a lot more complex than that, especially now that we understand that transmission and infection is pretty much the same. The curve is even inverse when it comes to the booster. So no one's putting others at risk. And the question is, if we should infringe on someone's fundamental rights when there's no democratic justification to do so, but the problem is we don't even get well, to have but, but, but again, you're saying there's it. no democratic justification to do so. A lot of people would argue with you and say that's just not true. Most Canadians no feel problem. that there is a reason to do that. And that is called democracy. But what they, one second, but what they feel, what they feel is not necessarily right. But even if they feel that way, we do not infringe minorities' rights unless it's democratically justifiable. So, yes, I understand that most Canadians, including myself, have made, have made the choice that most Canadians have made. Right. But that doesn't mean that we should force anyone against their will. It's a very, very dangerous, slippery slope, especially when it comes to one's personal health. You always want a second opinion. Your healthcare choices are individual to you. Absolutely. Let's avail, if, if, if someone wants to avail themselves of the protection that the vaccine wants to, wants to award them, that's wonderful. But that doesn't mean that we should force someone to do something against their will. And when you cut someone's ability to put food on the table, it's against their will. Okay, uh, I've only got a few seconds left here. I wanted to get some other... What else is important to you as leader of the Conservative Party? There has to be more than vaccines and mandates. Well, you raised the discussion on, on passports and mandates. I think it's a general... It's a democracy issue. We're I raised it 10 minutes ago, to be fair, sir. No problem. I, I enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you call me again. Look, I think it's a general democracy issue. We're seeing an erosion of the rule of law. Unprecedented censorship. Right, we see three or four pieces of legislation that seek to abridge Canadian speech, that uh, manipulate the algorithm of the social media watch. We see social media um, censorship as well. We see, we do, we see uh, the antithesis, the opposite of a free and independent media. When when the media signs, uh, when the government signs the media's paycheck, we're seeing uh, not just a surveillance state, but a new. Uh, erection of the security state. We saw kids being searched in Parliament Hill on July 1st, the little kids, as a condition of coming up on the hill to celebrate Canada Day. Um, as I said, the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So I, I think that it's erosion of parliamentary democracy, right? So I think it, it, it's very, very important to consider where we are right now in our nation's mm-hmm. history. Um, uh, I, I'm running on restoring and defending Canada's democracy. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Unfortunately, sir, we are out of time. We will have you back again, though. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, sir. Thanks very much. That is Roman Bobber, who is a candidate for leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right now, 
I want to have a conversation. This weekend, you may have saw um, hundreds of people attended a rally yesterday in Calgary. There was a similar one in Edmonton. wasn't quite as big at the legislature um, in support of women's reproductive rights and the right to have an abortion in Canada. It's all in response to um, what happened in the United States last week. Um, the demonstration, in fact, was called the Solidarity March for Roe v. Wade. U.S. Supreme Court, of course, overturned that landmark 1973 ruling that confirmed the constitutional right to abortion in the United States. And now, already, a number of states have made it illegal or brought in trigger laws that will soon make it illegal. And, um, you know, the, the right to access abortion in the United States has been removed in a number of different states. Um, so the, the question I have is, we see what happens in the U.S. and the protest happens in Canada. And I'm of two minds. Part of me thinks, okay, what happens in the U.S. doesn't happen necessarily in Canada. But at the same time, it would be naive to think that it couldn't because a lot of people thought it couldn't in the U.S. So let's get let's get a, into that conversation now with Dr. Martha Painter, who's a registered nurse providing abortion and postpartum care. She holds a Ph.D. in nursing. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia Faculty of Medicine, founder of uh, and coordinator of Wellness Within, which is an organization for health and justice, a Nova Scotia nonprofit organization working uh, for reproductive justice for people experiencing incarceration. Uh, Dr. Painter, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It, I mean, of course, when this this happens in the United States, it's very concerning. It's upsetting, and I understand why, and I I, I, I totally understand the concern. Just give us are are we. Um, naively com- comfortable in this country? Do we have this opinion that, oh, abortion is not an issue in Canada and it's easy to get and it's readily available? Um, are we sort of not really in touch with the realities in this country? What is the reality of surrounding abortion? How easy is it to access in Canada right now? Well, I think we have to separate the, the legal question from the easy question. So, I, 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 you know, I was just listening to what you were uh, already talking about, about our uh, political climate right now. And I think everybody's aware that the healthcare system has been under incredible stress uh, during the COVID pandemic, which yes. continues. And we're now facing yet another uh, wave of incredible stress on the system. Uh, so in Canada, as in many places in the world, there, there are, um, issues with getting access to healthcare. And in, in Canada, the predominant issue is, uh, for in, in relation to abortion care is geography, right? So you have a huge province like Alberta and that there's, uh, a concentration of surgical abortion providers in Calgary and Edmonton. So you really need to get there to get care. And although we have medication abortion available since 2017, um, because we don't routinely teach about it in nursing and medical school, we aren't getting the numbers of prescribers that we could have. So in theory, Shay, you could have a prescriber of medication abortion in every single community health center, every family physician office in the entire province of Alberta. And we don't because yeah. people haven't learned how to do it and aren't confident to do it. And, of course, you don't want to be doing care that you're not confident competent to do. Well, I was so really surprised have... to find out this weekend, Doctor, that in Alberta we have two clinics in Calgary, one in Edmonton, and that's it for the province yeah. of Alberta. Yeah, that is that is the situation. Um, so... <laughs> 
And, you know, that's actually the same amount of clinics that they have in New Brunswick, a tiny little province in comparison to you guys, right? In, In Nova Scotia, where I practice, we have four surgical sites and we have dozens and dozens and dozens of medication prescribers across the province. So Alberta has some catching up to do in terms of simply physicians and nurse practitioners doing the work. There's no, there's nothing restricting them from doing it. They have to choose to do it. Um, so that's really what we're facing right now. And, uh, you know, that's not something that uh, a politician uh, governs, right? right. Uh, you know, you can, you can pass um, some changes to payment acts to incentivize, make it more attractive to um, be doing this care, pay people properly, basically, is what yeah. I'm saying. Uh, but you can't force anybody's hand, just like, you know, nobody can tell me as a reproductive health nurse that I have to start doing brain surgery. Like, that's just not how it works. Um, so really, we need to put the pressure on our training programs our schools of nursing, our medical schools, so that no one is graduating without this knowledge. Because this is incredibly basic care. One in three people with a uterus will have an abortion in their lifetime. So it's very common. And if, if you can imagine, you know, going through medical school, not learning about the concept of cancer or diabetes. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are, that would never happen. Uh, and yet those things are less common than abortion. Um, so that's sort of where things are at right now in Canada. And of course, it's those people who are living in poverty, facing racism in the system. They are the people who uh, face these additional hurdles beyond just getting to the place. It's the cost of getting there and the things they have to navigate in the systems uh, to get to care that they're facing, right? So that's uh, the context in Canada that we have to be concerned about. But care here, abortion care is health care. It's the same as, you know, prescription for antibiotics or getting knee replacement surgery, like they were just talking about the yep. Pope. Yep. Um, so it's, it's not a legal matter. And uh, it's very important that Canadians know that um, because it, we absorb so much news from the U.S. and it, it can be very uh, easy yes. to get confused. That's the thing, Doctor, and I think we, we, we hear what happens down there. And, and you know what? To be fair, a lot of what happens in the United States does eventually make its way into Canada, but a lot doesn't. We're, we're not one and the same. We don't march in lockstep. So when you see something like what happened with Roe v. Wade and you hear, well, nobody in the U.S. thought it would ever happen there, and we sit here and think it'll never happen here, look what could... How concerned... I mean, does it raise an alarm bell for you, or is it just a, a chance for us to sort of have this conversation and... and, and you know, discuss where we are and where we're going. Exactly. This is such a good opportunity to talk about where we are and the barriers to care that remain. We've actually done amazingly well, and particularly since 2015 when medication abortion was approved by Health Canada, the Misopristone tablet. We've made such incredible inroads in terms of improving access. Uh, But as I said, there's those issues that remain. And, you know, in Canada, since the, the Morgenthaler decision, which is such an important moment in our history, everybody should learn about the 1988 Morgenthaler decision, we've, we've had about 50 um, uh, attempts by different MPs uh, uh, to have private members' bills to somehow restrict it somehow, and they always fail because of the way we've organized it, right? This is... Mm-hmm. This is care. So you can't legislate care any more than, for instance, I would have success as an MP trying to legislate, oh, well, you know, you have to have a 
mandatory waiting period for a knee replacement, or you can't have one if you're under the age of 16, these kind of foolishness. You can't do that, right? So you can't do that with abortion either. People are going to (laughs) try, and they're probably going to be inflamed by the situation in the U.S. to um, amplify their rhetoric a bit more in, in the coming months, but um there there's very robust systems to prevent that from happening and overall canada like 80 percent of canadians are extremely supportive Absolutely. of abortion so it's just a different um it's, it's a different context and we have different legal political and health systems so um we're never going to see the exact same situation here but we should always be watching and, and thinking about how we can improve health equity how we can um, make things more accessible. And, um, you know, sexual and reproductive health is so foundational to our well-being and our participation in democracy that it's really important that we pay a lot of attention to it and um, use these moments to make some further inroads in, in improving care. Exactly, yeah. It, it, it brings the conversation to the, to the forefront, and, and there's absolutely no harm in that. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for giving us a little background and some insight, and uh, I appreciate your time. Hey, um, Canada, topping another global list. Not sure if this is good or bad. In fact, I know it's not good. Um, Listen to this. Canadian airlines and airports topped a global list for flight delays over the Canada Day long weekend. Air Canada ranked first with delays on Saturday and Sunday that affected more than 700 trips. WestJet and Swoop placed third and fourth for delays on Saturday. Toronto's Pearson Airport claimed the second spot among airports on Sunday. Montreal was sixth. Uh, Canadians, as you know, have just been dealing with this for weeks now. Delays, cancelled flights. You show up to the airport and they say, ah, sorry, that flight's not going. We'll try and get you another one in a couple of days. Baggage that ends up who knows where. I mean, right now, basically, you're hearing from a lot of people, if you don't have to fly, if it's not absolutely essential for you to fly right now, maybe don't fly. It's gotten that bad. We're going to chat now with Carl Moore, who's an associate professor of Desotel's Faculty of Management at McGill University. Um, Carl, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. What, what's going on? I mean, if we take a look at this situation, and I know there's many different areas, I'm sure, that contribute to it, but if there's one overriding factor that has turned Canada's airline travel industry into what it is today, what would you say it is? Well, it's a fact is, uh, during the pandemic, business was down 90%. I remember I went out a number of Saturdays uh, to, to the airport, about a 15-minute drive, and it was like ghost town. And I just parked the car in front of the terminal, leave it there, no one else was around, walk in, talk to people 15 minutes, come out. That is unheard of. Even 9-11 was not remotely as bad as this. So we have this incredibly bad time for airlines or deep, profound financial trouble. And coming out of it, the guesses were all over the map in terms yeah. of when people are going to come back. And, and uh, part of it was just what, what's COVID-19 going to do? And that's a health care issue that uh, they just couldn't do anything about. So they cut back too much in retrospect. But that's easy to look back in the rearview mirror and point out what went wrong. When you look at IATA, which is the International Airline Transport Station, which is headquartered here in uh, Montreal and Geneva, they got it wrong, and they're the world's experts on it. ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, the part of the UN looks after airlines, got it wrong. And the, the airlines were probably too conservative. 
Because what happened was just a huge pent-up demand after a couple of years to travel, to see the world, to see family. And people have kept their jobs, had money, and they had money to spend. And so, in retrospect, it was not a surprise that there's a huge demand out there. At the same time, pilots, a lot of them retired. Because why wait for a pandemic? You're at an age where you can retire. Flight attendants don't make a lot of money, and they could go find better jobs with less tough schedules for the same or better money. So there's been a real... And and the the other big shortages of security people that work for the government at the uh, airports in Canada. And it's been around the world, but it's been in Canada is what we're talking about. That's been a huge additional problem as well. And I've, all, it's the perfect storm. And, I've, and, I've, and I think you're right in, in terms of cutting too deep. And then I've heard some airport officials say the reason they got caught off guard is because the summer rush that they were expecting and wanted to prepare for happened way earlier, like six weeks or two months earlier than they thought that it would. So they're playing catch-up. So you're right. I think in some ways it's it was a bit of a guessing game. It was trying to read the, the, the tea leaves and see where they need to be. And they blew it, frankly. Well, it's also that, you know, tomorrow, hopefully not, but COVID-19 could come back. Sure. Stage seven or eight, who knows what it is now. And it's something where business would slump off again. So... They are businesses. They're there to make money for their owners. Um, You know, Air Canada has not been owned by the government since Brian Mulroney. And I saw him the other day here in Montreal. He's 83. Mm -hmm. He was a prime minister a long time ago. So, uh, you know, and WestJet is owned by uh, Jerry Schwartz, uh, a venture capitalist out of Toronto. A family owns, uh, largely owns Porter. So some of their businesses and... A lot of businesses really had to cut back during the pandemic. I'm just sitting here across from the SAQ. It's the wine store in Quebec. One of them's closed. Um, a lot of businesses had to shut because, you know, for a couple of years, the demand wasn't there. And so responding to it perfectly, I'm not sure anybody did that. But the airlines, it's writ larger because we're all aware of yes. it. And most of us want to travel. Uh, and we're frustrated by this, for sure. That's the thing, and I think you make a, such an important point there. When you're talking about air travel, okay, the wine store across the street from you is closed. Okay, go to a different one. If, if, if you're an airline, you show up at the airport and you're traveling to attend a wedding or a funeral or an important business conference or whatever the case may be, a job interview, and the guy says, yeah, you know what, that flight's not going. It might be another one tomorrow or the day after. It's an entirely different category of business, is it mm-hmm. not? Oh, so yeah, and something where you look at Edmonton, you know, Montreal and Toronto are the big airports, particularly Toronto, uh, in Canada. So you can fly BA or Air France. Like, Air France has four flights a day to Paris, for obvious reasons. BA flies a couple flights a day to Montreal. So you have options, but as you get to a smaller city, there would be fewer options. Yeah. You would have the big air, you know, the big KLMs of the world flying into Toronto, then Montreal, and maybe Vancouver. So it means there's fewer options. So in Air Canada, and you don't have Porter, it only flies from the Island Airport in Toronto. I don't think it flies to Edmonton, but there'd be very few choices. And so there's not much you can do. There's WestJet and Air Canada, largely in Edmonton, there'd be some up going north. But it means that you really depend on two players. Yeah, largely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So so, so where do we go from here, Carl? I mean, we're in a situation now where I think everybody admits that it's disastrous. This is catastrophic, what's happening right now. Um, what's, the, what's the fix, and how long does it take? How long does this continue, do you think? Well, I think it's going to continue for the summer. Now, July 4th is the worst day in the States for the summer. We had July 1st. 
so the very worst is over. And uh, the government's hiring people for security, but they got to train them. They can't just send them to the airport. Uh, pilots take a long time to train, and you want to make sure, above all, you're safe. So don't put a junior pilot sure. who's on small planes into the you know the pilot seat of a big plane. Uh, flight attendants, you can pay a bit more, and you know some people want to go travel, see the world for a couple of years, and so. They're, they're working on it. They're going to move it forward. It'll be better in the fall, partly because there'll be less demand. Yep. But they will caught up to it to a certain degree by the fall. But that's not, you know, good news for families where you go, hey, the kids are out of school. We're yeah. going, we want to go now. And the kids are back in school in September. We don't have the freedom to travel. So I think it'll be better in the fall, but partly because demand's down. But all the, you know, the airports, as well as the government, as well as the uh, Airlines will have got their acts more together by then. But it, it means it's going to be irritating to fly this summer. Um, and you may have to uh, check your emails to see if your flight's canceled or do things like that. And you might go to the airport, go early. There's long lines. Um, eat your lunch at the airport rather than at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, take a good book. And pack some patience if you can. Well, you know, that's why the good book's there, is that saying, at least I'm enjoying a good read to John Grisham or something. So I'm enjoying the read, and just accept it's going to take hours longer than normal. But, on the other hand, the end of the flight is white. Sure. It could be worse things. Hang in there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Carl, thanks so much for your insight. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 